Hey everyone, on today's episode of Hunt for Real, I'm chatting with good friend and DIY bow hunter Darren McDougall. McDougall is an outdoor writer from Wisconsin who spends his fall chasing everything from turkeys and whitetails at home to elk in Idaho. He's as down to earth as they come and a great source of real world bow hunting information. In one minute, everything can change and it can become the best hunt of your life. It's a reality. Really understanding the landscape, that's what kills big deer. Sitting down today with Darren McDougall. How you doing, man? Hey, Tony. I'm doing great. How about you? I am. I'm doing well, buddy. I am. Uh, you know, this is my only podcast I'm recording today. When I get out of here, I'm going to go to the gym and work on getting in shape for elk season a little bit more. That's awesome. I I'm one step ahead of you, though. I already got my workout in this morning, so I'm all I'm all set, and I'm going to be married to the computer until dinner time. Uh, see, I I swap that around. I don't. I have a hard time working out right away in the morning. I like to get into the office and knock a few things out and and then kind of give myself a break in the middle of the day around lunchtime to go. But it's uh it's a good thing to do. You are you are you heading back to Idaho? I am. That's the trip that I look forward to the most every year. And it's funny because I grew up in Wisconsin and you know there's white tails and there's turkeys and typically people say there's no place like home, but for me there's no place like the elk woods and and it just yeah. puts a smile on my face just thinking about it. So I'm, I'm pretty excited and pretty stoked to get out there again. Yeah. It's, I mean, it happens a lot where, uh, you know, you and I both have buddies who live out West who have access to the animals we dream about and they want to go whitetail hunting. And then right. you know, we live in whitetail country and we're like, oh, I just want to go hunt elk. And yeah. that's just, you know, it's a grass is always greener thing. Um, I want to talk to you about elk, but I think I saw the other day, that you posted that you drew an Iowa tag this year? Tell me you drew one too, did you? No. And, oh. and I'll tell you why I did not. But you you drew one? You drew a I, Iowa deer I tag? Did. I Have did. you hunted It'll down be, there before? This will be my first time. I did make a trip down with my wife this spring. Uh, we looked at some public ground, several different parcels, and found some just incredible looking uh, sign and, and uh, just, you know, tree stand locations and everything. And I'm just excited to get down there and, see what it's all about because it's it'll be my very first bow hunt there and and yeah it'll, it'll be it'll be awesome just to get a different perspective of white whitetail hunting because i've hunted public land all over um as you have in many different states and I've, I've never hunted iowa so i'm excited to see if it's worth all the all the rage that people make it out to be yeah you know i was interesting um are you you don't have to give too many specifics are you hunting in the southern part of the state I am. Yeah. I, I had put in for a few different preference points. And in the process of doing that, I hadn't really had a lot of time to pick out an exact area. Mm-hmm. So once I got the three points after last year, I decided to get kind of serious and start looking at maps and kind of knew that I could possibly draw this year. Um, and if not this year, it would definitely be next year. So worst case scenario was I would get kind of a jump on next year. But yep. luckily, I, I wound up and drew this year. So I, I did get my finger on the pulse by being down there this spring. And I think that's a big advantage. I think you'd probably agree to that as well. Because like when you show up for a road trip bow hunt, you um, have five, six, seven days to hunt. And that includes scouting. So you've got to like, you've got to put all the pieces of the puzzle together in that short window. And sometimes it pays off. Uh, like it did a few years ago when I took my biggest buck down in Oklahoma. And sometimes you walk away scratching your head like, well, that was a terrible hunt. But 
Um, I think the big thing is you learn something from every experience, whether you're successful or not. And that kind of draws me back and, and keeps me going after whitetails on public land. Well, for sure. And, you know, I've hunted, I've hunted Oklahoma a couple of times too. And one of the reasons, you know, we, we look at Iowa, you know, it's supposed to be the promised land. I've hunted down there twice on private land, had amazing hunts. Uh, yeah. But, you know, my next time will be on public. I'm doing the same thing as you. I've been scouting public. I've actually taken two different turkey hunting trips down there to roam different zones. And the one I, the one I went to this year is where I'll draw for deer next year. Um, but what's, you know, you look at the cost and you go, well, I was, I was tags, no joke. It's expensive, but yeah. it is Iowa. And for, you know, a guy who lives where you do or where I live, you know, I can drive 12, 14 hours to get to Oklahoma. I'm not going down there to scout Iowa. Right. The, the unit that I am going to end on now um, you know, it's like three and a half, four hours from my house. So I, I can do the same thing. I can go scout it. And that, when you're, when you're looking at the, making the most of a tag like that, that's so important. You know, and you, you talked about I or Idaho, you know, you're not probably taking too many scouting trips to Idaho if you live in Wisconsin and right. that, that boots on the ground, no pressure. You're not hunting, but you're going scouting. Those trips are crazy important. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And you know, bow hunting whitetails, especially the landscape has changed so much. Like when I first started bow hunting, if I knew then what I know now, there's so many good places that when I first started hunting, they were great. And now they're subpar, mediocre, or not even worth going to just because they got, you know, all kinds of press and everything like that. And so with that being said, we need to give ourselves every advantage possible. And bow hunting, no matter what kind of bow hunting you're doing, it's tough no matter what. Even if you have a buck walk out 20 yards, it's not over until you put that arrow through them. I mean, stuff happens. Bow hunting is hard. So giving yourself advantages is, um, I think, the best way to end up successful. Yeah, for sure. So what when, when, like, were you down there in March, April? When did you go down there to Iowa to scout? March. And March. I think it was, uh, I think it was toward the end of March. Yeah, it was the end of March. And I think I was a little bit butthurt because the locals uh, had scooped up all the sheds. I was told by the, the um, wildlife area manager that I spoke with. He said, yeah, they, they'll uh, go and shed hunt and look for sheds to their target bucks that you know might have dropped on public. So, I mean, <clears throat> I understand where they're coming from. And, and I think that they're entitled to be there just like I am. So, I, But for me, I was hoping to pick up a few sheds and we didn't find any. But we did find incredible deer sign scrapes rubs bedding areas food sources you name it we found it and it looked like dynamite so we'll see if the the puzzle pieces all fall together this fall so i'm I'm curious about your perspective on the iowa public land because you know i've turkey hunted a couple different properties i've walked a lot of properties down there and it's like it's incredible how good the public land looks I mean, you, right. you, get, you get into a lot of it and it's, it's just beautiful timber. There's a lot of fields and food plots on the public and it's like real easy to fall in love with places. But I also found just about not everywhere I've been, but most places I've been down there. If I would go to a place where you're like, well, this is a no brainer spot to hang a tree stand. There'd be a tree stand there. Did you see a lot of that? So I don't know if it was due to timing or if it just doesn't get as much pressure but um, I didn't see any in, in March. So, I mean, oh, I saw one, 
I actually saw one climber. I take that back. One climber in a in a spot that I thought looked like you know a real good funnel area, um, kind of sandwiched between two bedding areas. It's like a dry creek bed, and uh, lots of deer travel going on. You know, on the both parallel and crisscrossing that that uh, drainage ditch. There was a climber there, but other than that, and all the walking that we did in three days, my wife and I, we did not find another tree stand. So I'm hoping that that's somewhat of an indication that it maybe doesn't get pounded like like uh, people say that it might. And coming from Wisconsin and having hunted um, you know, certain spots in Kansas, too, where getting a tag is fairly easy, I think that Iowa's, this is just my hunch going into it, I think that Iowa's pressure is going to be uh very minute compared to what we're used to in the midwest um, or farther up in the midwest up here i should say i think so too and i mean i think that's you know sort of the price you pay for i mean you you pay that higher license tag you wait three years or license price you wait three years four years whatever it is now but you know they're only letting i think six thousand non-residents in every year or something i mean it's pretty small and iowa just generally doesn't have a ton of hunters and so I think you're right. I mean, I, I, it's all, we talk about hunting pressure all the time and it's all relative. You know, I mean, yeah. if you, if you come from a, I hear people complain about hunting pressure in a state like South Dakota and I look at that and then I've hunted like Wisconsin and I go, man, this is a lot different, but you know, it's what you know. So if you grew up there and the hunting pressure is 10 times what it was when you're growing up, you're going to think you're overrun. But if you end up in a place that has a lot of hunting pressure, you go, whoa, you know, I mean, I've. I, I don't think I've, I you know obviously I haven't hunted every state but I've sat in a tree stand in Wisconsin on opening morning of gun season and I am just like I can't even fathom I mean you know not that long ago after a couple of bad winters it was bucks only in a lot of places or it was real hard to get an antlerless tag right and I, I was rifle hunting one of those years and I'll never forget just sitting there I'm like how are this many people seeing bucks two minutes into the season. I mean, it was just gunshots everywhere. And so, you know, the pressure is relative, but I think you're right about the Iowa. I, I mean, I think you're going to get a quality hunt there on public land, just about anywhere. And, you know, I brought the tree stand thing up because it's, it's weird for me. You know, my strategy typically isn't to go into a spot and sit on the easy field edge. You know, I mean, you hunt a lot of public land, you don't, you get over that real quick. And a lot of the tree stands I saw were in places like that. So it doesn't, I wasn't surprised and it doesn't bother me because that's not what I'm, that's not my plan anyway, but something yeah. I'm thinking about, and I want to ask you about, you know, you look at Iowa and you go, you have the entire month of November to bow hunt without a gun season coming in. And that's, that's one of the things that's like tremendously appealing to a lot of bow hunters. Yeah. Right. And, but I'm like, I'm kind of thinking, you know, because of that is, you know, what level of the pressure, what percentage of the pressure is going to be November 1st through the 15th? I mean, most of it probably. And I'm like, could a guy go down there mid-October when probably nobody's going to be down there, kill one on a scrape pattern, kill one staging or something? And I'm, I'm kind of, I might do a short, when I draw next year, I might do like a four-day weekend right in the middle of October to see. Yeah. I think it's relative to weather. I've heard that October can be the best if you get a big cold front that comes through, it gets bucks moving. Um, and interestingly, I was just talking to Aaron from the hunting public uh, two nights ago for an article that I'm working on. And he said that they hunt really hard in October. And a lot of it is because there isn't that pressure. Yep. A lot of guys 
come on the scene like around Halloween or November one and hunt real hard, you know, that first week of November. And so I think the, probably from what I'm hearing, the best times, especially considering that Aaron lives down there, probably the best times are going to be late October, especially if the cold, the uh, cold front comes through. And then again, uh, toward Thanksgiving is when the, the big boys, you know, that are looking to breed the last few does once they come out of lockdown, it's probably going to be another good time. So I'm hoping I've got a, a rifle um, application into the South Dakota draw. And that season runs from the 17th to, I think, December 1st. So I'm hoping to get down to Iowa and hopefully put something on the ground, you know, by November 10th, be able to come home, regroup a little bit, and then head out there and, and fill that tag if I draw that tag. So, yeah. uh, you know, it all sounds good on paper, but you never yeah. know until you get into the thick and thin of things. So we'll see. So you're, But you're looking at a, t- a typical rut hunt for Iowa, though. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like that pre-rut, you know, when they're hitting the scrapes and when they're just starting to cruise a little bit has kind of been my favorite time because I feel like, you know, when you're hunting, um, I don't know, terrain pinch points and stuff like that. I think that when they're full on chasing, it's hit and miss in those spots. I mean, you could spend all day there and you might see a number of deer or you just might not see them because what I've learned is, in different areas, um, Oklahoma being one example, the locals down there told me that when the, the bucks, you know, are truly with the doe that they're going to breed, they'll go to the prairies and they'll, they won't even be in the, the trees. They'll kind of be in the wide open, so to speak. And that makes it very tough for a bow hunter unless you're hunting on the ground or something like that. So for me being a, you know, going into this Iowa thing, the tree stand route, I'm, I'm planning on hunting, you know, scrape areas on the edge of uh, bedding areas is kind of what I'm hoping to do mostly. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think that's a, that's an excellent strategy. And I, you know, I'm looking at it, you know, you said, you know, maybe you'll get a cold front in October. Certainly that's a good, you know, you you can't go wrong with a, like a real nice cold front, but the stuff I found down there where I'm going to spend some of my time, I'm kind of hoping if I pick like, October 12th through the 16th or something to go down there on an early hunt. I kind of hope it's 107 degrees because everything I, not everything I marked, but a lot of the places I found had water. And yeah. if it's hot in October, there won't be very many people in there. And those bucks, right. you know, I see, I really had my eyes open the last few years in Wisconsin, hunting Northern Wisconsin during mid October, you know, in Minnesota, because our gun season opened so early, you as a bow hunter you really got to get it done in september or october because you can't count on any of november on any given year or like a very very small chunk of it and so my i've always i've never looked at october like it was a bad thing i've always just looked at like that's the time i have to hunt but on a lot of my public land hunts you know up in northern wisconsin where there's a lot of pressure um i'm having some of my best hunts now right in the middle of october well before halloween and just kind of at that time when people are like you know, they're over the, the opener of grouse and bow season. They're kind of taking some time off before Halloween and the rifle baiting and all that stuff kicks in. Right. And I'm just kind of thinking maybe down in Iowa, there'll be that October one rush with the opener. Then it'll die off a little bit. And then, like you said, people will start trickling back in there around Halloween. And, you know, I don't know if that's going to be true or not, or I don't know if that's the best strategy to kill a giant, but I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to do it when I get that tag. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that 
that window can be used two ways as well. I think I plan to, once I get back from Idaho um, and regroup a little bit, I'll probably head down and hang some trail cameras, some cell, cell cams. I've never used them before, and I figured that this is probably going to be the best year you know, to jump on that bandwagon and start using that technology and harnessing it to the fullest extent. Because um, in a situation like that, I am, you know, eight, nine hours from where I'm going to be hunting down there currently. And uh, to kind of monitor activity, I'm in a spot where I can get down there in a half day drive, you know, and that's so in other words, if a big buck starts slipping up and coming into some scrapes, uh, regularly during daylight, I can zip down there and hunt him, you know, that quickly where like you talked before with Oklahoma, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a little farther and stuff and it's just far enough that it's not real practical to go down and, and hang cameras before your, your run hunt. Yep. Yeah, so you've, you've never used any wireless cameras before? Um, I, I field tested one, one year. Um, I, I put it out and stuff and got pictures of deer after hunting season was over. Um, I, I did a review on that one. As far as actually using them as part of my hunting program, I have not. I've just got the standard trail cameras that have been around for years. I'm, I actually am working on an article right now about this because I've, I've used them a little bit randomly. I got, I got one um, for bear hunting. Cause in, in Minnesota, we have a no quota zone, which is basically, um, everything marginal for bear cover. So you can, you can basically buy an over the counter tag. And the, the, the spot I have to hunt is a hundred miles from my house. And with a traditional camera and, it, and it's like real spotty bear activity. And there's a lot of people who will run a bait just in case, cause it's, yeah. you, know, you can get a tag. And so I was, I was making the trip up there like two or three days, you know, a week. And I'm like, you know, round trip, this is 200 miles. And I don't know if a bear's hitting my bait and there'd be, you know, two weeks at a time where there wouldn't be a bear there at all. I'm like, this is so inefficient. And so I tried a wireless camera and it made it, you know, way easier to monitor. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, I would, I'd see a bear come in, whatever. And I'd be like, okay, he's going to get on a pattern. And then he wouldn't show up for two days. And then another bear would show up or something. And I actually didn't hunt as much as I probably would have if I didn't know that. Cause I'm like, well, nothing's on a consistent pattern. And it was super cool to see like, you know, the notification pop up that you had a picture at, you know, an hour before dark. Yeah. The problem was I actually used it to make bad decisions because I would have hunted more. And so then I was like, man, I'm not, I'm not so sure about these things. And I stopped using them for bears and I put one um, at one time on one of my properties in Wisconsin just to see, yeah. cause it's, you know, it's too far from my house, like you said, and just to like, it's just to see how it would go. And I realized I, 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 I enjoyed using it a lot. They're super addictive, but I didn't feel like it was helping me make a decision on when I should hunt because I'm sitting here going, okay, well, I have this long weekend anyway. I just need to go hunting. You know, I'm like, yeah. you, you know, I mean, I make my living writing about hunting. Like if I have time to go, I just have to go. So it, like whatever that camera was showing me of that little part of the world was irrelevant to whether I should be going or hunting, hunting or not, you know? And so they're yeah. kind of, and I'm sure there's guys who have better uses for them. I kind of am to the point now where I just like them in certain situations because it's fun. Like I just yeah. like, like I have one out now 
just to try to get some velvet bucks. It it'll be I'll take it down before the season. It won't it won't have any bearing on actually like whether I hunt there or not or sure. you, you know, it just it won't matter, but it is really fun. And my whole like one thing I noticed about those cameras is my whole family loves it. Like, cause you know, you'll get a coyote that goes through or a turkey with the poults or something. And it's just cool to see, like, it's just this neat technology, but it's, it, at least for me personally, I haven't felt like, man, that was the game changer to, you know, as far as the hunting strategy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I plan to, I, I can see where you've used it to your possible demise of being <laughs> successful, but I think I plan to use it more like you know, should I, should I run down there to Iowa for a three or four day hunt in the middle of October? You know, does it make sense to do that? Cause I probably from an, I don't know, from a, a standpoint of needing to be at the desk and stuff like that, October is usually my time to really crank out a lot of work before the pre-rut and the rut hit. So it's kind of like, is it, is it going to be worth the sacrifice being away from the desk? And yeah, I can take my laptop with me but i think you know as well as i do it's so much more difficult to get work done while you're on a hunt yep so i'm going to use it that way and hope that uh you know it shows me a buck in in mid mid october hitting scrapes and if not i'm going to go down and hunt anyway you know starting at the end of october yep you know you know what the rub is with that you, What's that? you know, those bucks are going to be hitting scrapes in mid-October. I'll tell yeah. you right now, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just what they do, but it is, I mean, it's, 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 you know, I'll, if you see seven bucks hit a scrape, you know, it's time to get your butt down there, you know, like yeah. you just, you just know. And so, I mean, I, I'm, I, you know, you mentioned Aaron from the hunting public. I had a long discussion with Zach the other day, Zach Farrenbaugh, and we kind of got onto the topic of trail cameras and I'm just like, I love them, but I am just like so cautious. And it's, it could be just like my personal, like maybe my own ADD or something or my own ability to use them. But I have to be so careful with them because I just, I, I get nervous allowing them to influence my hunting decisions. You know, like if I, I just, if, if I have it, you know, you know how it is. Like if you go, if you pick Oklahoma or Kansas or wherever, and you go on a five or six, seven day hunt, it's not like you're going to take a bunch of days off, you know, or like if, if you have a morning or evening or an all day to hunt, you're going to hunt no matter what. And, and a lot of times you kill deer that way. Like you just, cause you're out there and you're making those decisions on the fly. And I'm trying to stay in that lane as much as I can. Cause I feel like, I feel like my hunts are just kind of like progressing more naturally that way. And I make better decisions instead of letting outside stuff influence. And I've seen, I mean, we were, we were out in North Dakota one time, probably, gosh, man, I don't know, maybe 2012, 2013, something like that. There were a couple other guys from Minnesota out there and they brought everything with them. They were dipshits. Um, I, in fact, I ran across one of them. He works at a pro shop and they were these guys who talk about 200 inch bucks constantly. And I'm, I'm positive. They've never seen one outside of a pen, but they had trail cameras and they had kayaks for the river and they had everything. And those guys couldn't buy a deer sighting. And I'm like, what are you going to do with a trail camera in four days? You know what I mean? Like you're going to walk into there. You're going to find a, a creek, uh, like a river crossing or something to hang that camera. You're going to check it two days later. you like, it's just, it doesn't make sense. And so it's, I don't know. I, I see, you know, that's, that's a sidebar. That's a tangent, but I'm just, I'm always like, just be careful with these. They're super fun, but make, make decisions based on more than what they're showing. You know what I mean? I think that's like a, 
the private land hunter who has the pressure locked up, a trail mm-hmm. camera is a legit tool for them, you know? Yeah. And for us, you know, when you're talking about the pressure of public land, it's it's like more of a grain of salt thing. Like, just just be careful because there's a lot of other stuff going on out there that should factor into your decisions. Yeah. Um, a side note I want to ask you about is when you're, you talk about when you're on a hunt like that, you're going to hunt every opportunity you've got. You're going to sit in the morning, you're going to sit in the afternoon, and maybe you're going to sit all day. When you're on these road trip hunts, I'm curious to know how how often do you hunt a particular stand? Like you find a spot that you're really confident in and you're like, if I'm going to kill a deer, it's going to be in this spot. Do you ever feel like on a road trip hunt, like you overhunt a stand or that you can overhunt it? A hundred percent. And I, I, I'm hyper aware of that too. Then that, I mean, that actually came from my private land experience because it's easy to go sit the stands you already have up. You know what I mean? So like you just right. kind of go, I I believe in this spot. They're coming here. So I'm going to ride this out. My my typical strategy now is if I if I'm hiking in with a stand on my back and I find some find some sign that stands going up and if I don't see anything or if I don't see anything worthwhile, I might either pull it or I'll come back and sit it in the morning. And if I get two sits on that spot and it's not happening, I'm done. That's the most yeah. I'm giving a spot like that because, because of that, like, I really think we make up our mind that we have this stuff, right. You know, we can pull up, you know, aerial photos and stuff and go, this is where they're going to be. Then you walk in and if they're not there, you're not doing yourself any good hunting there. And no. like to recognize that we get it wrong. We talk about this all the time, like to know, to, to sit there and go, okay, this wasn't it. You know, it's like elk hunting. People do that with elk hunting all the time. Like, well, they're going to be in this drainage. Look how gnarly it is. Look at the meadows. Yeah. Well, what if they're not there? What do you do? You know, keep going, man. I yeah. I think anyway. Yeah. And there's so many uncontrollable factors. I mean, you, uh, well, one example was in Kansas a few years ago. I hunted uh, a spot where some deer crossed like the sandbar so i was basically overlooking the river and there was just a little sandbar that they could travel across and then they could hop over the river in another spot or that actually they would launch right into the river it was actually pretty fun to watch they would launch into the river and then go up the the opposite bank but it was just a perfect uh scenario you know to kind of pinch them through a tight spot and i thought okay i found this spot and there's nobody else in here and i'd hunted it a couple times passed on a small two-year-old and then uh, one night I was hunting there and all of a sudden I heard rattling and I started looking with my binoculars and eventually saw this dude on the other side of the river and I'm like, okay, didn't have this spot all to myself. And now does that mean that a giant couldn't come through there during the rut because of that? It doesn't mean that, but it does mean that there's been more human intrusion there. Yeah. And it does mean that bucks are going to be more cautious about using that area. And most of them are probably going to use it at night because of that extra disturbance of not only myself being in there but to think about it on on another hand is he was also hunting it on the wrong wind like i was hunting it when there was a wind blowing right in my face right at a a steep uh hill that goes up into some prairie behind me and well he was on the other side of the river so the, the his wind was blowing right across the river to some of his deer and all my deer so i thought well that was one of those spots, like you said, where you recognize, okay, it's probably not going to happen here. And you pull out and you try something else. Yeah, man, that kind of thing happens a lot. I mean, when you, when you hunt public land, it just happens a lot and it happens, 
you know, you get into a state like Kansas where you might be dealing with a little bit more limited cover and, you know, everything's concentrated along a creek bottom or something. It is just real easy to bump into other people. And I don't know what it is. I mean, the hunting industry, and and you and I are both guilty of this. It seems like everybody's out there calling and everybody's out there rattling and grunting nonstop. And I'm like, guys, listen up. Like, do you hear any buck fights going on? (laughs) Like how (laughs) how often, you know, I mean, I've, you know, I spent a lot of time in the woods, whitetail hunting. I've seen very few buck fights, very few. And, you know, to hear, to hear one grunt chasing is special. It's not like it's super common. And, you know, I get that it works, but there's just, I'm, when I hear that, like, I don't want to be anywhere near that guy because it's probably not going to happen. Yeah. I think a lot of people watch the outdoor TV shows and, you know, some guys look like they walked out of a Cabela's magazine or something like the guys you mentioned that you saw in North Dakota where they, they're just like loaded down with all this gear thinking it's going to, you know, make the difference. But the fact is, I think the simpler your approach is, the better. And, and I mean that from, you know, a tactical standpoint on how you go about hanging your stand and accessing your stand and, and the time you spend there, you know, making sure the wind is right, but also like the more gear you haul along, the more noise you're probably going to make as you go through brush. And, you know, if you don't take the extra steps to silence all those things, like deer are going to pick up on that and they're going to, you know, they're going to recognize the the extra commotion and probably not use the area like they were prior to that disturbance. So for me, I, I gravitate toward the less is more mindset. But with that being said, I'm also looking for things that do give you an advantage. And one thing that I would bring up is an ozone generator. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of different uh, opinions probably out there, but I came from a completely neutral standpoint in the very first evening that I ever used one. I had a two year old buck perfectly downwind at 15 yards and he absolutely had no clue I was there. He did smell the ozone, I guess, yep. because he stood there and like kept licking his nose trying to figure out what the ozone was, but he did not smell me. And I've never had a deer in that, that close proximity, you know, downwind yep. that didn't smell me. They always do. So I thought that was pretty, pretty cool. So that is one extra thing that I do pack along. And yeah, it is a little bit of a pain in the neck, but I do feel it's a game changer. I killed uh, a big mule deer buck out in Nebraska with my bow last December that came in from 500 yards directly downwind. So I've seen it work. Um, another situation out in Idaho, uh, I had a cow elk at uh, eight yards and the wind was hitting the back of my neck. And she did the same thing with that two-year-old buck did that I mentioned earlier. She kept licking her nose and spent probably 15 or 20 minutes there. Could have shot her hundred times if she was a bull and yep. you know, she was legal. I could have took her, but I was waiting for a bull, but something like that, it has a legitimate place yep. in your pack in the whitetail woods. I feel. Well, so yeah, I mean, we should, we should get into that. Cause you know, people, pe- people have their minds made up on ozone, you know, and you hear all the time, well, it can't work, can't work, can't work. If you dig into ozone technology, humans have been using it since the 1880s. I've had to research the crap out of this stuff because I've written about it a lot. We've been using ozone to purify all kinds of stuff for a long, long time. Water, um, they used it for, uh, and maybe they still do, I don't know, but to purify the air, uh, like in in war zones, if they have to operate out in a tent somewhere in a humid environment or something, um, and and 
there, there's so many different ways it's already been used and proven that, that it's like, you, you just do a Google search on it. Now, people will say, well, you get into a tree stand, it's going to blow away or it's going to float up or something. That's not how ozone works. It sinks. It's heavier than the atmosphere. That's why the air smells clean when lightning strikes. It's the same thing going on. And even if you think like, okay, well, I can't beat an elk or a deer's nose, which is what I thought. When I, when I first got an ozonics unit, when they came out, I was like, this thing, no way, right? So yeah. I did the same thing as you. I, we were actually filming a buddy and I on a farm in southeastern Minnesota. So I threw that sucker up. And this was one of the first years we had antler point restrictions. So you couldn't shoot anything unless it had four points on a side. And I saw this buck walking through the brush. And I couldn't tell whether he was legal or not. But I snort wheezed at him. And this is another good lesson because it was September. He came right in and I could see he was a, he was a decent deer, but he had no brow tine. So he was a six pointer. And yeah. so he just happened to be this buck I couldn't shoot. And he starts swinging downwind, you know, and I said, well, here we go. And he did the same thing. He walked downwind, hit, hit our scent trail and stuck his nose up in the air, licked his nose a bunch of times. And you're like, well, what's going on now? Because he clearly smells something. He just turned around and he walked right past us out of there. And I was like, um, okay, I'm going to get, uh, now I'm going to give this a real shot. So I started using it on public land here in the twin cities and I'm going, okay, well, this is clearly providing me an advantage. And then I thought, how do you, how do you test this to show people that it's like, how can, how are you going to understand it? Cause if you're like, that can't work. So I started testing it against my bird dog. I'm like, all right, if I can beat a black lab's nose, a good black lab that hunts a lot, then it's it's relatable to a deer. You know, it's similar. And so like shed antler training, I could test all kinds of sprays, all kinds of stuff. And then I could treat an antler with ozone. And there was no question in my mind that that ozone eliminated all my hand scent off of that antler in a way that nothing else that I tried did. So at the very least, if you're like, okay, ozone can't work in an open air environment, whatever. You can believe that if you want. I don't I don't really care. Buy one, don't buy one. I don't give a shit. But treating clothing, treating boots, treating your gear, whatever. If you're like, well, it has to be an enclosed environment. If your clothes are in a tote and you treat them correctly, like when we're on camping trips and you, you know, you have no washing machine, you have no way to do this stuff, you can, right. you, you can get an advantage from it. There's no question about it yeah. at this point. And so I'm in the same boat. I don't use, I, it depends what kind of situation I'm in. I don't, I don't use it every time, but certain situations for sure. I'll use an in the field generator and because it really does work, especially you're talking about sitting on a Creek bottom or something. You get into some of those little swirly, you know, five mile per hour, seven mile per hour variable winds where it's going this way and that way. And it wasn't doing that two hours ago when you sat down. Um, it can be a big advantage, I think. Yeah. And I think people just have to use it because that's what made me a believer. I think that, you know, seeing is sometimes believing for skeptics. And so, you know, not that I was a skeptic. I was I was neutral. I was like, well, maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. And when I tried it. Uh, you know, seeing that it worked was what made me a believer. So I think that's what, you know, people ultimately need to do. If they're skeptical, they need to just try it. And I think there's, <laughs> I think there's enough people out there that are probably going to use it and claim it didn't work. Cause I mean, look at expandable broadheads. My family ran an archery shop for uh, eight years and I worked another two years for the, the uh, new owners. And we had all the time people would come in and say, Oh, my expandable didn't open. 
well how do you how do you know that it didn't open well i i saw that it didn't open and it's like <laughs> you're telling me that an arrow moving at 250 plus feet per second and in some cases a lot faster than that you're telling me you saw that the blades didn't open and it's like so there's i, I just i believe that there's people who you will never convince uh yeah. something you know fully they're just they're just that they're just wired that way i guess well that i mean that example the expandable example is because they made a bad shot a lot of times and they yeah. don't want to be at fault um, right you know i mean it, certainly we've had mechanicals that did that were not built very well and didn't function oh, yeah. very well i mean it, we've seen that but you know we we're masters of deflecting accountability is, you know, just as humans and, you know, the, the ozone thing. I mean, I, I wasn't like you, I didn't go into it neutral. I went into it like uh, this, there's no way this can work. And after the first time I was like, okay, well maybe there, maybe I'm wrong about this. And what I find a lot of times, and I'm sure you do too, <clears throat> is when you have to start like really researching something like one thing I like about what's happening in the outdoor space now is some of the some of the people I write for some of the publications I write for are asking for journalism again. So some people want, you know, top 10 bows, that kind of stuff and that's fine, but some people are like, "Hey, let's explore this issue. Get some sources on both sides and let's do some journalism on it." And I find almost always when I do something like that, I've got something wrong. Like I'm thinking something, I'm believing something that's wrong about the issue. And there's somebody who knows a hell of a lot more than I do that'll say, no, this is how it is. And yeah. I'm like, man, you know, I, I'm lucky and you're lucky because we're in a position where that like, that's our job. We get to learn and educate ourselves and hopefully become the conduit for, you know, the, the hunters and fishermen and whoever out there to learn too. Yeah. But you find that so much of these issues, so much of these things there's a lot more going on than just saying, oh, this entire broadhead category sucks and can't work. Like, really? <laughs> Despite the fact that there's thousands of animals every year that are killed this way or this thing can't happen or, you know, that kind of stuff drives me nuts. But you, you just you see it a lot. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that, like you said, we're we're um, naturally wired to deflect <laughs> fault, fault. And, and some people are better than others. Uh, but in the end, I mean, everything just works out, I guess. Well, hopefully, I mean, the good news is, is we live in a country and we have lives where we are so lucky that we can just, we have the, we have the opportunity to get rec recreationally outraged over broadhead choices or like yeah. over the deer, somebody else killed. Like we, we have the luxury, like that's what we can care about in our day to day life. Like think about how. I think about how insane that would be to like in a third world country, like something comparable to like get pissed off about a stranger doing some like killing a rabbit with antlers that's smaller than what you think should be. Like, it's crazy. But we, you know, like we do that stuff. I got to I got to ask you something before I forget. So I I think you told me this story um, the, the Oklahoma buck you're talking about, the big one that you killed down there, were, yeah. were you, was that the situation where you got into your tree and there was another guy in there? Was that you? Well, sort of. Um, I found this spot along, uh, it was like, um, there was a bunch of oaks along this, uh, this dry creek bed. And on the other, on the one side of it was the river, a big river. And on the other side was prairie wide open. So I found it looked like a, a spot the deer would travel and it was hard to see sign because of the fresh fall and leaves and stuff like that. 
Um, it just looked like a spot where bucks would cruise through. So I, I had hung a stand. Well, I, I, I came back the next morning and, and as I was getting to my spot and, and I could see my, the silhouette of my tree stand, I also saw the silhouette of a hunter about 10 yards behind me. And it was one of those really awkward things. And I thought the best option for both of us, even though it's awkward, is for both of us to just stay here and not make any more noise. Because I, I walked to the base of his stand and, and said, didn't you see my tree stand? Which, of course, it was dark when he hauled his stuff in there and he didn't see it. But he said, no. And I said, well, I've got a tree stand like 10 yards from you. <laughs> and uh, I said, if you're okay with it, I'm going to climb up. And we're both going to hunt here. If you have a shot at something, go ahead. And if I have a shot at something, I'm going to do it. But I said, if I walk out of here, I'm going to make more commotion. And it's already, you know, it's 15 minutes from, you know, the first wink of daylight. So we sat there. We didn't see any deer. Um, his Then then his partner comes walking up, which I didn't know he had a partner. And so I thought, okay, well, the morning hunt is over. So I got down and visited with them a little bit. And turns out they had hunted that spot several times in the past and had shot some bucks there. So I thought, well, um, I'll move out of here. But then they told me they were going to be heading back to their hometown and they weren't going to be hunting there anymore. They were from Oklahoma. So anyway, I uh, I did a little, I pushed a little farther thinking that that spot was probably somewhat contaminated by our presence in there. So I pushed farther and actually found this uh, funnel area where the deer come up out of that uh, creek bed bottom, the oak bottom. They come up and head toward the prairie. There's like a perfect funnel. So I got in there and hung a stand and I was a little pessimistic. Um, I actually was kind of down on myself and called a friend that does a lot of road trip hunts and got, you know, kind of kind of got my enthusiasm reboosted. And he, I told him the spot and told him what, what it looked like and everything. And he felt like I had a pretty good chance there. So I went there the next morning and got up and hadn't seen anything until about 730. And then a, a doe came up out of that bottom just like I thought and behind her was that 150 class and at the time that was the biggest buck I had ever seen while hunting and uh, he came out and I had to take a pretty long shot but I got him and he went only 20 yards into a thicket and piled up and so it just shows that there's no absolutes like we're talking about the equipment stuff and people think things are a certain way or whatever there's no absolutes with bow hunting anything can happen yep well that's a hundred percent true. And, you know, I mean, uh, that experience, the, the takeaway, the upshot from that is you didn't let that experience take away from the hunt overall. You kept going. And that is an important one, man. Like I've, you know, I've hunted Oklahoma two different times and this isn't unique to, to that state. Of course, two things that occurred to me when you were, when you were telling me that story are, you know, I see a lot of hunters in Oklahoma when I'm down there and, yeah. you know, they're just, there's just a lot of hunting pressure. Um, but every hunter I've ever talked down, talked to down there has been super nice. And I've yeah. run into a ton of them where, you know, like one of the, one of the places we hunted is like real patchwork public. So it's like, you know, 320 acres or a section here and checkerboard kind of stuff. And it was like just an unspoken agreement from everybody that was hunting. Like if there was one truck parked there, you'd go find another spot. And everybody I talked to kind of like people weren't coming in on you. And I know it's different in different situations, but I've always, other than the fact that I've just seen a lot of people out hunting there, I've always had super positive interactions with the hunters down there. And it, it, that kind of makes me like that state a lot, even though, you know, like when I go down there, I know it's going to be tough. Um, Yeah. 
but there's a lot of deer, you know, for those hunters, there's a lot of deer down there, but the, the, the main lesson in that story is you walk out to your stand, there's somebody there 10 yards away. That sucks. That guy's buddy walks in. That sucks. Now you've got three people who've walked in there, got their scent all over, you know, but instead of saying, well, it's time, you know, like instead of letting that make your decision for you. You're just like, okay, I'm just going to move on. I'm going to go find something else. And even when it's like getting you mentally and you're like, maybe this is not going to happen for me, call somebody who's like, stick it out, man. It's going to happen. And then what happens? You know I mean? It's like, it doesn't happen like that every time, but if you stay in the game and you know, like your, your instincts were spot on, you went and found a spot that that deer came through. Like that's not nothing, but it's a matter of sticking with it when a lot of people find really good reasons to give up. Yeah, I think that this whole public land thing that we do, it's not for the faint of heart. I mean, you have to have thick skin. You have to be able to roll with the punches. Stuff doesn't happen like you expect it to. There's times when you show up and you you have the, the places marked, you know, on, on X or whatever app you might be using. And you get in there and there's either tree stands or or there's other factors. Like uh, the the year after I killed that big Oklahoma buck, that property was junk because they had uh, major flooding in the spring. So all the soybean fields were sky high grass. The deer could bed anywhere they wanted. There was acorns everywhere. So it changed everything. The spots that were money the year before were absolutely nothing. And the deer were you know, very, very sporadic. They weren't really rutting at all. Not even on the trail cameras did I have much luck. So, I mean, there's, there's any amount of things that can stack up against you. And the ultimate thing is just to stick with it like you said and i've taken i've taken bucks toward the end of hunts you know it's, it's easy to get discouraged it's easy to think it's not going to happen or or kind of want to pull out and do something different but man you stick with it sometimes you get that little that little chunk of gold at the end oh for sure i mean i've i i have a lot of times where it's either I I'm spot on in my research and I get there and within like a day I kill or it's the last day. (laughs) Like it's then, you know, if you don't get it right, right away, then it's time to figure stuff out. And that can take you two, three, four, five, six days where you're like, okay, now I got to get on to something. And that last evening, you know, we hear about it all the time because we romanticize, you know, the buzzer beater buck or whatever, but it happens a lot. And it's like, it's sort of like, it's, it's like a mental thing. You know, we think like, oh, if I'm rolling the dice and I haven't got sevens in a long time, they're bound to come up. And that's like, not how it works. They just, it's just random, you know? And it like, I think if you have four days to hunt, so you got a, you know, morning, evening, morning, evening, morning, evening, you know, you have, you have eight sits basically like yeah. one eighth of your hunting time is every sit. They're all just as valuable. You know, like if you're making decent decisions. And so we think like the first one's so important, but the last one is too. Same amount of time, same chances, you know. And actually, I think in some ways the sticking to it and having stuff like that happen makes you make better decisions. Like or or makes you you're like it kind of kicks in your spidey senses and you're like, okay, if this spot's blown, what do I have to do now? to get to someplace where this isn't going to happen and being forced to do that. That's the difference between private land and public land. A lot of times the, the public land thing, you're always making new decisions because there's no consistency. Like you said, yeah. you know I mean, it's just, it changes all the time year to year. Um, it's just, 
you can't rely on anything. It's not like this food plot that you maintained and these bucks you babysat since they were a year and a half old that are coming in every day. It's a different thing. And so you're just forced to think on your feet. And, you know, like you said, it's, it's not easy. You know, I mean, a lot of people have a hard time with it mentally staying in it. But when you get like a taste of success, like what you had there, I guarantee you since killing that buck in Oklahoma, you've had an easier time staying out on crappy hunts since then, because you know, like, man, remember that one time in Oklahoma when I was about to give up and then I killed the biggest buck of my life that, that, that carries a lot of weight with us mentally. Yeah. I think, you know, going back to what you said about decision-making, I mean, you have to be a decision maker. And one of the most important things I think to avoid a nosedive result on these hunts is an Aaron from the hunting public and I talked about this the other day that when you get somewhere it's tempting to just hang on the first really good sign that you find and say this is it this is where it's going to happen and a lot of times what happens is somebody moves in and blows all the deer out or dogs come running through and blow all the deer out a hundred uncontrollable factors exist out there that can happen and I think what the best approach is, at least what I've seen and what he described, you know, that he's experienced is when you get somewhere, you've got to spend, you know, a good full day driving around and going and hitting in on all these little spots and trying to find multiple locations so that you do have backup. Yep. Yeah, that that's a hard lesson to get across to people. Do you know, especially if you only got like five days, you can spend a whole day scouting, but I think the I think you should, and I think the value of it is you you can't overstate it. Um, I I I do almost no matter what the first place I go to or the first if I go to a new place, I'm walking around the first day and just dipping in or glass. Some some of the states we go to, you can glass and you know low impact figure out okay they like to cross this river here or whatever, but yeah. it's always. It's always, you know, Alex Gilstrom and I talked about this. It's always ground truthing your pre-hunt scouting. You know, all the aerial photography work, all that stuff, that's great. It doesn't take into account all the elk hunters who came through or the guy who was hunting, you know, prairie chickens, you know, five minutes before you got there. Like, it doesn't take into account that stuff. And there's nothing, there's nothing like walking into that little pond you saw in the aerial photos and it's just covered in tracks or sitting up on that peak glass and you see the mule deer going here or the white tails going here and you go okay i i was i was in the ballpark now i know that's the spot and that yeah. that matters a lot and people i think i think i see this happen sometimes where they they'll do that like you see this elk a lot i'm sure you've seen this with elk hunting a lot where people will show up and they're like oh i'm gonna go hike into this meadow and hike into this wallow and everything and sometimes it's to the detriment of the hunting overall if it's not done correctly. So you have to use some tact. You have to think like if I'm going in to check this spot out and it it's on, I need to do this in such a way that I can go back and I can hunt it now. You know, and yeah. so and so it's not just like a blunder through. It's not March scouting where you're like, I don't care what I what I boot out. You know, I'm looking for antlers. I'm talking. I don't care. It's different when you sneak in on day one of your hunt. To, to ground truth these spots, be smart about it <laughs> because you want to, you don't want to, you, you don't want to screw up an awesome spot just because you treat it like it's just scouting because it's not just scouting. Yeah. 
And I think that proves true when you're doing an active hunt like an elk hunt too, as far as you're always flipping the coin in your mind. Like if you're on a bull and you, he's, he's bugling and carrying on and everything, but he's, you feel like he's losing you and, and you've been on him for like two days in a row already. And you know that he's going to be in the area again tomorrow. It's like, okay, do I risk trying to chase after him and get to him or, or do I play it safe and back out? And that's kind of a lesson that's died pretty hard for me, but it, it truly did die last year when I killed my bull because I was on bugling bulls from daybreak until I killed him at noon. And, and that's rare on public, especially over the counter public. Um, but you'll get one or two days like that out of a whole season where there, where it is almost like a private land hunt if you're in the right spot. And multiple times in my mind, I kept thinking I've got to back out because eventually the thermals are going to get me and, and they're going to bust. And then this is, this money spot is going to be nothing tomorrow. And I kept telling myself, tomorrow is not a guarantee. Tomorrow is not a guarantee. And I kept pushing after just making sure the thermals were good and eventually worked into a situation where a bull walked right up to me and I shot him at 12 yards. So I think there's merit to playing it safe, especially on a whitetail hunt where you're hunting from tree stands yeah you don't want to go busting through there and and ruin it on the first day but on a more active hunt sometimes you don't have a whole lot to lose like you can you have the option of picking up and moving on and hunting actively you know somewhere else on foot so i just said to myself tomorrow's not a guarantee let's go let's go kill them and, and i did and so i mean it just it's a situational um, decision that you have to make and you're always sure. again flipping that coin in your mind like should I or shouldn't I and you ultimately have to be decisive well you do it's 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 like being cautiously aggressive like I, th I think a lot of people especially in the whitetail world are, are too conservative in their movements they're they're too worried about blowing deer out or whatever but I think to like the, your your elk example there it a lot of that what you what you're not saying but what I'm hearing is just experience. Like you go, okay, what's the risk reward for this? Like I've hung with this dude for two days and it just hasn't happened yet. How, like, how do I, do I make it happen now? Or do I wait and have another day like this? And you know, there's so much going on that you just make decisions and you can just feel like the way you're describing that day. It's just on certain days. Yeah. Like there's just, there's just certain things you can get away with. And you see that in the whitetail world. Like it's, it's very easy for a public land hunter to listen to these private land guys say, well, you can't, you know, you don't want to screw them up. You'll blow them out. You don't want to put them nocturnal. And it's like, well, you, you have the luxury of saving the deer if you control a property. Yeah. You don't yeah. have that luxury if you're on public land. And so I'm always like, you know, be more aggressive, just be cautious about it. And so I look at, you know, in, in a similar but different way to the elk thing you're talking about where if I'm like, man, the, the sign's pretty hot here, I might be on the edge first. That might be where my stand goes. Now, yeah. I just want to see what's going on, you know, or I want to sit back and watch that bean field on public land and decide what what's going on there. And then the next step you're moving in. And sometimes it takes two more steps to get there, but you're not just, you're not just bowling over the spot. You're going, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to give myself a little time to figure it out, but I'm, I'm going to get in there. You know, yeah. and it's in it's to me, it kind of depends how many backups you have. You know, yeah. like if you're if you're working one creek bottom and that's that's all you got, then you're going to be a little more cautious. 
You know, you're not, you're, you know, cause if you, if you do, if you screw up, you might not be able to recover. You might not have a plan B, but I've been to places, you know, like in Oklahoma or South Dakota, where there's multiple walk-in ranches or multiple um, chunks of public. So it's like, well, if I hunt this spot for a day and I get a little more aggressive and it just doesn't work, I've got lots of other places to go. You know, like it's, it's like, I, I can get away with, I can get away with like the risk I can bump that up a little bit because it's okay because I, I have backup. So you, you kind of got to gauge that too. And that, that again is a function of scouting. If you know you're relying on, you know, you're living and dying on one spot, then you're going to be way more cautious. But if you're like, I got, I got three places I could go or five places I could go, then it's like, okay, now you have the option to make more decisions around strategies and stuff. And, you know, like you said, you, you said this perfectly, like it's all situational, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, I've got a question for you. So do you ever hunt the wrong wind? And and I'm more or less talking like I know you're not going to do that on the private that you hunt in Minnesota. But like when you're on a road trip, have you or have you ever or do you hunt on the wrong wind? Um, Sort of. So I if I find a spot and I actually do this at home too, because I don't have that much time to hunt Minnesota. Um, what, if I find a spot, this is what I'll do. If it has to be hunted and I can't get a stand to hunt it for the wind, or if I, if I look at it and I'm like, if I get into that stand, the wind sucks, I'm going to sit on the ground somewhere. I'm just going to natural blind it, or I'm going to, I'm going to hang a stand back off of it or something. I'm, I'm to the point now, unless it's really bad, I'm going to figure out how to hunt it. I mean, there's just certain situations you can't. Like, you just look at it and you go, it's just, it doesn't make any sense to be here. I'm just going to destroy this spot. But yeah. I will I will push it a lot in certain situations on the road if I only have a few days. And it just, it's like, a, like you said, it's all situational. Sometimes I'll push it. But, you know, like I'm never, if, you know, if I'm like, they're either coming from here or there. And the wind's blowing this way, but they still might come from that way. I certainly might sit that. It just yeah. depends, you know, and it, and a lot of it depends, you know, you make your decision based on, you know, the wind's blowing 20 miles an hour out of the West now at three o'clock when you're walking out to your stand, but what's it going to be doing at seven o'clock or, you know, five thirty? And so sometimes you sit there in the wrong wind for like two hours and you hope that, you know, scout look or whatever gave you the right advice and the wind's going to change or something. So it just depends. But I, you know, like generally no, but oftentimes yes is the answer to that question. Yeah. I, I threw all the chips into one tree stand um, in Nebraska. It was actually my first bow hunt there back in 2009. And I looked at the five day forecast for the time that my brother and I were going to be there. and found that there wasn't going to be a good win for the stand that I was most excited about that we went in and hung. And so I, I went, I went all in on the very first night, opening night. And, uh, this was before ozone. I just, I took a bottle of, it was probably a uh, hundred specialties scent eliminator or one of the other ones. I don't remember. And I just kept misting myself with it the whole entire night. And the mosquitoes were so bad. I had the thermosel going, which, you know, that puts out a little bit of uh, butane smell. And I just kept I just kept spraying myself down. I obviously sweat really bad walking in because it was like 85 degrees. And right at last light, I had a beautiful 10 pointer. In fact, he's the one right over my shoulder right here. 135 inch 10 pointer with some kickers and stuff came in directly downwind and he got to 30 yards and or 25 and smelled me bolted and stopped because I grunted at him at 
30 yards and he turned broadside and I let him have it. And it's like, okay, it's, you know, sometimes <laughs> you just got to do what you got to do. You got to hunt the spots that you're confident yep. in and, and just, you know, you, you're careful. It's not like you're smoking a cigarette up in the stand. You're, you're being tactical. You're using your, your resources and your tools. And, you know, does it happen like that every time? Of course not. But I mean, sometimes, especially on public land, like you said, a lot of people on private land will, they'll save deer until everything is just right. We don't have that luxury. No. We got to just, we got to be aggressive sometimes. And, and it's a risk versus reward um, affair. You know, you got to look at it that way. Well, yeah. And you, you know, that situation, sometimes you find a spot that's just so good. It's worth it. Like yeah. you just, you just look at it and you're like, I have to sit here. Um, I've found that occasionally on river bottoms where, you know, there's only, you know, three trees anywhere near where you want to set up. And you're like, I, it's either this, or I got to put on a ghillie suit and sit on the ground and hope they think I'm a stump, you know, like there's just, there's, there's only so many options. And, you know, the, the other thing about that, that story about the Nebraska buck you just told is we look at, you know, like 135 inches is a freaking great deer on public land. It's, it's incredible. We would think of that deer as being this mythical creature that never makes a mistake or yeah. never gives you an inch. And it's just not true. Like sometimes they're just not on their game the way, you know, like sometimes we just get really lucky. Sometimes they're just not on their game. And I see this with big bucks sometimes where, in some ways, they're like more tolerant of our mistakes than like the doe with two fawns is like, they're just, they're so yeah. confident, you know? And like, if they see you draw, like, they're like, no way. Like, you, you like, there's no way that guy got in here on me. And sometimes does, they turn inside out. And it's just like never a foregone conclusion that you're, because you're dealing with a four and a half year old or a five and a half year old buck, that he's going to be this just pure survival machine every second of his existence. You know, that's just not how it shakes out. Yeah. If it was that way, we'd never kill a single one of them. For, for sure. For sure. I mean, if they were, if they were as good at it as we, we like to claim they are, then you'd never touch them. I mean, you'd, we'd all be hunting with rifles cause you'd never get bow close. And it's just, I don't know. It's, I, I love that kind of stuff. Cause it's like that kind of thing doesn't happen to most people. Cause they're not going to be in that situation. And yeah. for you, you sit there and you go, man, I killed a great buck doing this. That informs decisions you make the rest of your hunting career. Yeah. You know, I mean, it just does. And instead of making the decision to not hunt there, you hunted there and learned something. I mean, you, you had the obvious reward of the deer, but you also learn like, man, sometimes it's just worth risking it. Just is. Yeah. And to your point about bucks, maybe sometimes not always being on the top of their game, uh, I love hunting September if I get opportunities to do it, which it's hard because it's, <laughs> it's right during elk season. Yeah. Now, now that I get, got bit by the elk bug, it's hard to, hard to balance both of those. But, um, in September, I've always been a firm believer that when you get the first crack at deer, they're unpressured for months. They haven't been hunted for months. And if you've had any amount of time to scout, and even um, glassing, like you talked about earlier, and looking at bucks and watching what they're doing, they don't expect somebody to randomly show up on September 1st. Are they going to be stupid? No, they're not going to be stupid, but they're they're probably not really anticipating somebody to come walking in September 1st. And quite frankly, a lot of people don't hunt, so you might be the only one out there. Yeah. Um, I know in South Dakota, you mentioned that some people call it pressure out there. Well, I've hunted places out there and haven't. 
I've never seen a vehicle in September before. Yep. You know, I have seen multiple vehicles in October and November, but that first that first crack, especially if it's not a full moon and, and stuff like that, I've I've had really um, really good hunts. I haven't killed a lot of early season bucks, but I've I've had some really fun encounters and and killed a couple of really good ones in September, and it's one of my favorite times to hunt. Oh, me too, man. I, uh, if you, if you put a gun to my head and said, you got to kill 140 incher and I'm going to give you September one or November one, I know what I'm picking every time. And it's not November. I, I've got, I've killed more mature bucks in September than any other month. I'm positive of that. And I, I think there is, you know, there's a couple things to it. A, yeah, they haven't been pressured in an awful long time. B, you can get on a really, really strong water pattern. A lot of times, yeah, and right. I, I talk about this all the time, but I use that on public land to my advantage constantly. Because if it's yeah. hot, people don't want to hunt, and they say, you know, the deer, I'm going to be sweating too much. They're going to smell me. The deer aren't going to move. I'm like, every deer out there is going to get thirsty today. I love yeah. that. Um, and so, the, I mean, there's there's just some different ways about it. I mean, different things to do. I want to ask you one last question. So, say some dude's listening to this, and he's in. I don't know, pick a state, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, wherever. And he's like, I want to go hunt one of the good whitetail states. I want to go to Iowa or I want to go to Kansas, North Dakota, South Dakota, wherever. I've never hunted public land before. Like, what's the, like, what's the one tip you'd say, please, please listen to this. If you don't, if you don't pay attention to any of my other advice, what's the one thing you would tell somebody planning a trip like that? Use your resources, use your mapping tools, um, especially on X. I mean, they're there for a reason. If you don't use them, you're you're missing out on an incredible opportunity. And uh, I use them a lot, and would would probably obviously never go to an out of state hunt without having done a lot of pre hunt app work. I call it. Yep. You know, I, I've done some articles turning map work, as people used to call it, into app work because that's what it is, and it's a great resource. It simplifies everything. It organizes all of your your um, places of interest, your tree stands, your trail cameras, everything. And and so I think that using one of those apps is probably one of the, the most important things. But then also just to go the distance. Um, I've, I've had this idea to start uh, some, I don't know, website or something called Mile One. And I, I think because people, that's, that's like kind of a barrier. People you know, the, the very first mile is always the hardest, whether you're elk hunting, you're deer hunting, whatever it is. And it's the people who go past that, who go and, and drive that extra distance or walk that extra distance and push through and, and work harder. Those are the people that are regularly successful. I mean, yeah, there's people that go and hunt right off from the edge of a road and kill a big buck every once in a while. You you, you hear of that. But I think the big thing is to push hard, man. It's just yep. you got to stick with it and hunt hard. Yeah, well, you got to – there's no question that you got to outwork the competition most of the time. Yeah. And in the whitetail world, that's not that hard, typically. Uh, right. You know, and it, I like that you – you know, the mile one thing because we talk about that a lot with I, – I, my rule on public land is if I can get away from the access point by a mile for whitetails, 90% of my competition is behind me. Right. Just, you know, it's not elk. Elk is different. But yeah. with, with whitetails, if you're willing to carry a stand in a mile, you're going to win most yeah. of the time. And so that's excellent advice, man. Uh, Darren McDougall, where can people find you uh, out there in the uh, outdoor space? So um, obviously I'm on Facebook. Uh, I said 
a hundred times I would never get Instagram, but I did, I did, <laughs> I did the other day. I, I caved and, and got it so people can connect with me on there. Uh, McDougal hunting is my Instagram page. Would you call it a page? I don't even know. We'll call uh, it a page. Okay. <laughs> Handle. I learned, so, I learned Feed. something today. Yeah. So <laughs> but, obvious uh, social media superstar, Darren McDougal, you can find you on the, <laughs> on the gram, on Facebook. Where else, man? So I do a lot of writing for uh, multiple different publications. I do a lot with Grandview Outdoors. They publish Whitetail Journal, Bowhunting World, Archery Business, Hunting Retailer, um, and a few others that I haven't worked uh, for with them. But do a lot with them. Do a lot with uh, uh, Petersons and Bowhunter. Um, just kind of spread the spread the work out across the the board. And you know, I don't think I've ever t- turned down an assignment. So I mean, it's liable to see me anywhere i guess that's that's the life of the freelancer well buddy it was a pleasure to get you on um we'll get you on you know next year after this iowa hunts wrapped up and talk about the giant you killed down there um i want to thank you so much for coming on this was a lot of fun um and we're we're gonna get you back on buddy yeah it sounds good i enjoyed the opportunity to take a minute away from writing and talk hunting that was great all right thanks man yep thank you thank you so much for listening I can't honestly put into words how much I appreciate anyone taking the time to check into the Hunt For Real podcast. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe so you can get the latest episodes each week as we drop them. You can also find us at huntforreal.com, our YouTube channel where we'll be putting up tips and films throughout the year, as well as through all the usual suspects when it comes to social media. Again, thank you so much for listening.